close your eyes for just a moment, and I want you just to take a deep breath and draw to your mind an image of Jesus. This is not a test, so just relax on the details. But by way of reminder, Jesus was a first century Jew from the Galilee in the north. He likely had brown skin, dark hair, a scrubby beard, and simple dress. Just take a moment and imagine Jesus in your mind's eye. Now, open your eyes. Question, how many of you, in your mental picture of Jesus, was he smiling? Okay, so about 20 of you, well done. You win the Theology Extra Credit Award tonight. Well done, you must have a good teacher somewhere at the church you're a part of. But, no, like, I would just take credit for that. It was a joke, I'm not serious. <laughs> so far, should I just walk off stage? Bethany, are you up for tonight? You, you're on your game tonight, I'm, I'm not. But for most of you, the other however many hundred of you in the room, most of us, when we imagine Jesus in our mind's eye, we don't picture him with a wide, deep, genuine grin on his face. And if you're one of the several hundred, not one of the 10 or 20, don't feel bad, you're not alone. Think of most paintings of Jesus down through church history. At best, the dude looks serious. At worst, very dour, right? I mean, and after all, doesn't the prophet Isaiah say that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? I mean, Jesus went to the cross to bear in his body the sin of humanity, to draw to a point all of the pain and suffering and violence and injustice and deception and dominion and the chaos of all human history and to break its hold over the world, which is beautiful, but that doesn't sound like a very fun job. What do you do for a living? Bear sin in my body not exactly like the most fun. So it comes as no surprise that very few of us look to Jesus for advice on how to live a happy life. We're more likely to look, even if we're Orthodox and we follow Jesus, when it comes to how to live a happy life, we're more likely to look to the Dalai Lama or positive psychology or the mindfulness studio up on 17th or just to a vacation somewhere warm or a new restaurant opening or a bonus check at the end of the year, not to Jesus. In fact, if we're honest, Many of us think that Jesus has little to nothing to offer on the quest for a happy life, which is tragic, seeing as most people's deepest desire is to be happy. If you ask the average person on the street, what do you want most out of life? If they are honest and they plumb the depth of the, their desire, they will just say something like to be happy, especially in our city, which is not a destination city for you know people which is less of a destination city for people with more ambition to you know, change the world or whatever, and more of a playground for hedonists. But still, even those people who want to change the world, if you ask them why, what is it deep down, most people ache to be happy. The great minds of church history have all noted the truth of this. Augustine in the fourth century, every man whatsoever his condition desires to be happy. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, man is unable not to wish to be happy. Blaise Pascal in the Enlightenment, all men, and by this they mean people, seek happiness. This is without exception. And we often hear that the desire to be happy is, you know, at least immature. Like if you're really mature, you don't want to be happy, you want to be holy. If it's not a full-on sinful desire. But what if the desire to be happy isn't the problem? 
What if it was actually put there by God, by our creator into the creation, not from a more duplicitous source? What if it's actually a prerequisite to becoming a person of love? What if the problem is not our desire to be happy, but it's that we look for happiness in all of the wrong places? In the language of Romans chapter one, in the creation rather than the creator, we take in the classic human condition move, God's gifts, and we turn them into lowercase g gods, and even the best of God's gifts can't bear up under the weight of our desire for happiness. And what if there is no better teacher on how to live a happy, or if you prefer, joyful life than Jesus? And if you are skeptical of that idea, as I was for many years, let me show you the happiness and joy of Jesus through the lens of the Christmas story in Luke. Take a look at Luke chapter one. Let's start off in verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Uh Uh-oh, Mary's in a hurry. She needs to read my latest book, and um, she's not. Next time you're in a hurry and you feel guilt, you're like, why am I in such a rush? Just know that you're in good company with the mother of God, right? It's okay. Where she entered Zachariah's home, and she greeted her cousin Elizabeth. Now, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb, and Elizabeth was then filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. Now, a full explanation of the kind of etymology of this is outside of our time limits, but very long story short, the word that is translated blessed in your English Bible is makarios in Greek, and it's lost its original connotation the word blessed has in English. The word actually means happy. And it meant that when the Bible was first translated into English in the King James Version, Version, it doesn't, the word blessed doesn't mean that anymore in modern English vernacular, but it does in Greek. So a better way to translate this is, happy are you among women, and happy is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for what? Joy and happy is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. So the very beginning of the Christmas story is about Mary and Elizabeth, two pregnant women who move from a life of hurry to a life of joy. And it's not just for the women. Turn the page, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great what? Joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, and the angel goes on. Notice, what does the angel call the good news about Jesus? It's translated good news or gospel if you have another translation. The original word really is a little bit closer to glad tidings. That was a word used by the Roman Empire for any kind of good news or kind of an announcement for victory in war or the birth of a new king or something that was caused for an empire-wide celebration, which is why the angel goes on to say it will cause great joy. This is referring back to a famous line from the prophet Isaiah, which is in the ESV translated as, quote, the good news of happiness. Is that how you think of the gospel? As the good news or the glad tidings of happiness. Jesus' entry into human history is great news as it will bring about the happiness and joy of many people. Turn over to chapter four. 
By this point in the story, Jesus is now a grown man, and we read about his first sermon in our language. Luke chapter four, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee from the desert in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, here's one example. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and here we are thousands of years later in his way. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is a famous prophecy of the coming Messiah from the 8th century B.C. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news or glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight toward the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is teaching in an oral culture, which is very different from our own. And so everybody in that synagogue would have had all of Isaiah, or at least all of this passage, in memory, and would have known what the next line was in Isaiah. Quote, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. All of that would have been in Jesus' listeners' mind or memory. Then 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus saw his life's work as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. This is what he came to do, to preach the glad tidings of the kingdom and to see mourning and despair give way to joy and praise. I mean, just think about what it would have been like to follow Jesus around Israel. Pretty much everywhere Jesus went, he healed people. Have you ever been there for healing? Have you ever seen somebody get out of a wheelchair? Have you ever seen somebody walk in through that door on two crutches and walk out twirling them over their head? I have. And if you've been there, whether it's at church or in your community or on the street, what do you feel in that moment? Joy. You will watch. People will just break out in spontaneous combustion and clap or yell or hoot or holler or shout or sing or whatever it is. And there's always somebody who says, amen, like really loud, right? Like, there's just spontaneous combustion in joy. Everywhere Jesus went, he healed people. Crowds of people, a family, a tribe, a village would come with so-and-so who was sick or under the power of a demon, and he would heal or set free. Can you imagine everywhere Jesus went, there would have been laughing and singing and shouting and a part. He would have been like a walking party. Turn over to chapter 10, a few pages to the right. Jesus called people to first follow him or apprentice under him, and then when he felt like they were ready to go out and do all the things that he had been doing, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to preach the good news of the kingdom. When they come back, we read this, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with what? Joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. 
Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice, or that can be translated joy or be happy or throw a party or celebrate, that your names are, that the spirits submit to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And at that time, Jesus full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. I love that line. Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. One translation has, the Holy Spirit made Jesus feel very happy. So this joy was not just rooted in a happy temperament. It wasn't just that Jesus was one of you lucky people who won the cortisol lottery. It was rooted in his relationship to God the Father and in his view of what God the Father was like. Turn over to chapter 15, a few pages to the right. And just take a look at Jesus' view of God. Chapter 15, verse one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Everywhere, again, walking party, and everybody was invited to Jesus' walking party, including all of the wrong people. Then Jesus told them, the religious people, this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Very common, it's a pastoral day and era. Okay, very common. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? I have no idea, I've never been a shepherd. I'm guessing that's a rhetorical question and the answer is yes. Five, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice or throw a party with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. All I want you to notice from this well-known parable is just note what Jesus' view of God is like. In Jesus' mind, or in his theology, if you prefer, God is a joyful God. And every time one person comes into relationship with God through repentance, God and all of heaven throw a party. Turn over for one more example to Luke chapter 24, just to the very end of Luke's gospel. Comes as no surprise that the end note is one of joy. Luke chapter 24, verse 50. When Jesus had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. He made them very happy. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great, what? Joy. Joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Now, from Luke's portrait of Jesus, we pick up two or three very important things. If you're taking notes, just go ahead and jot this down. One, God is the most joyful, happy being in the universe. To recap the basic message of the gospel, God became a human being in Jesus. And in Jesus, we see what God is actually like, from an idea to a person. And when you read the gospels, What do you see Jesus doing? Well, 
in a list of other things. You see Jesus feasting. In every painting, he's bone thin, but you know, his critics called him a glutton. So I'm just saying, I don't know what the truth of the matter was, but that was the critique, right? I doubt he was all that thin. You see him feasting. He's at a meal all of the time. One scholar said of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either on the way to a meal, on a, at a meal, or on his way home from a meal. <laughs> Another said, if you read the Gospel of Luke and don't get hungry, you are not reading it right, you know? <laughs> He's feasting, he's laughing and making jokes. So much of that is lost in translation. There's a great little book, if you ever want to read it, called The Humor of Christ by the Quaker intellectual Elton Trueblood, where he just explains the difference in humor between a first century Jew and a 21st century Westerner, and explains how much is lost in translation from Aramaic to Greek to English and from the ancient world to the modern world, but basically makes the point that Jesus was really funny and just goes through example after example after example of take the tree out of your face or whatever the story is and helps you realize, oh wow, that, that sounds really somber or serious when we read it in English and it has this like church tone around it. That would have been really funny. Jesus was funny. He's playing with children everywhere he goes. Children don't wanna be around grumpy people, okay? Some of you are like, why do children never come up to me? I just explore that with community, I don't know. But everywhere Jesus went, they had to like bat the children off of him. I imagine him like the children crawling on his shoulders. He's practicing Sabbath, a day of delight. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was, quote, anointed with the oil of joy, meaning people like the author of that book who knew Jesus best said he was incredibly joyful. And that means that God himself is incredibly joyful. Take a look at this from John Piper. And yes, it's a Christmas miracle. I'm about to quote a Calvinist, all right? <laughs> Gee, this is so good. I can't not. Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe. His gladness is greater than all the angelic gladness of heaven. He mirrors perfectly the infinite, holy, indomitable mirth of his Father. You see, a theology of joy is based first and foremost in a theology of God. Michael Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says it this way, the Trinity is the operating center of all Christian belief. He goes on to call it the cockpit of all Christian thinking. The, the magisterial Swiss theologian Karl Barth said this of the Trinitarian community that we call God. God's triune being is radiant, and what it radiates is joy. It's loving interweaving of persons as if in a cosmic dance radiate beauty. God acts as the one who gives pleasure, creates desire, and rewards with enjoyment. And he does it because he is pleasant, desirable, full of enjoyment. This is what we mean when we say that God is beautiful. If we deny this, we at once have a God without radiance and without joy and without humor, a God without beauty. Or I love this from Steve DeWitt. Before you ever had a happy moment, or your great-grandparents had a happy moment, or Adam and Eve had a happy moment, before the universe was even created, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit were enjoying a perfect and robust relational delight in one another. We see this in the Father's word over his son at the baptism. Quote, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased or that can be translated, with whom I am very happy, or in whom I delight. That is just a glimpse into the inner relational nature of the Trinitarian community of God. Delight, I'm pleased with you, I'm happy with you. 
Or think of Paul's line to Timothy about the glorious gospel or glad tidings of the blessed God. A more accurate translation would be the glorious glad tidings of the happy God. Point blank, in your face, God is happy. Now, of course, that sparks all kinds of questions, like, well, yeah, but what about Jesus, who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and on the night before his death, death, we read that he was overcome with sorrow, and John makes it clear that Jesus wept. No question. There's no question about that. But one of the marks of psycho-spiritual growth and maturity is the capacity to hold both sorrow and joy together. You know, you feel that in particular as you age. I'm nearing 40, and for the last year or two, when people ask me the customary, hey, how are you, or how's it going, or how are you doing, I feel like I hesitate. I don't really know how to answer that anymore. I used to be able to say I'm doing good or I'm doing bad. Now I feel like I'm doing great and terrible every day. <laughs> it's because there are some aspects of my life that just are pain and disappointment and doubt and unanswered questions and unsolved mystery and God, where are you in this and the, the ache of my heart. And then every single day I wake up and my life is rich and full of joy and gratitude and pinch me, I can't believe this is my life and I'm warm and I'm dry and I'm safe and I'm in community, I'm not alone and I have meaning, I have purpose and above all I have God, my life is painful and it is incredible. That's the human condition. It's pain and it's joy together. A sign of how mature you are is your capacity to live in a world that is full of pain and suffering. With your eyes wide open, not to close your eyes and pretend like, it's okay, it's okay, as long as I'm in my little bubble, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, think happy thoughts. No, to live in the world with your eyes wide open to everything around you and still live with joy. And the only way I know how to do this is to view the present, both the joy of the present and the pain of the present, in light of eternity. What Jesus is living in, as best I can tell, is a high awareness, much higher than myself most days, that sorrow is temporary, but joy is forever. Similar to the tension in theology between God's love and his anger, and how the New Testament writes that God is love, but never writes that God is anger, but yet God is angry, and you see that on display in Jesus. But when you unpack what that is, you realize, oh wow, his anger is very different from my anger, which nine times out of 10 is egocentric. I do not get what I want. His anger is the anger, it's, it's the righteous anger in the language of the New Testament. It's the anger of a mom or a dad at the drug dealer who's there to dupe a teenage child, right? It's, it's the right kind of jealous is the word used in the Old Testament. It's actually a great word. It means that you're passionate and you care. You're not apathetic or indifferent to the plight of those that you love. That's what God's anger is like. So God's anger is actually a subcategory of his love. When you love somebody, you are angry when their life is not the way it's supposed to be. In the same way, God's sorrow is like a subcategory of his joy, of this is not the way the world is supposed to be. And when the kingdom of God has come in full at Jesus' return, Jesus will never feel angry or sad again. He will revert back to his true nature as the most joyous, happy being in the universe. And it is incredibly important that we think of God this way, as happy and joyful. Tozer once said famously, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And very few of us agree with that statement. And the longer I sit with that thesis, the more I agree. One, because how we think about God will shape how we relate to God. 
Nobody wants to really be, if we're honest, around that painting, around somebody who is dour. We're all drawn to the Bethany's and the Gerald's of the world, right? People who just deeply enjoy their life in God's world and are full of joy. There's a magnetism. I fell in love with my wife because I was like a really melancholy artist in an indie band and she was just happy and other things. But you know, that was, that was a selling point, I'm not gonna lie. Right, there's a magnetism in people, like we feel this inner draw. We just want to be around people who are at ease in their own body and full of gratitude and joy and light up a room. If you think of God as angry and on edge and gloomy, who would want to draw close to that? And if so, it would more likely be out of duty than out of desire. But if you think of God as the most loving, joyful, compassionate, funny, a little sarcastic, but not in a mean way, wonderful being, calm in all of reality, who would not want to get up early tomorrow morning before work and pray? And two, because how we think about God will shape who we become. One of my professors, Trevor Hudson, put it this way, it would seem that we shape our picture of God and then that picture of God shapes us. Behind every personality, behind every decision, behind every formation is a theology of God, for better or for worse. Think back to that teaching a few months ago in the vision series on the emerging field of scientific inquiry that is neurotheology. All of the data is clear. As you meditate on God, it literally rewires the neural pathways in your brain and you become more like your vision of God for better or for worse. So much of our pain comes from failing to think rightly about God. This is why it is so incredibly important to get our vision of God from Jesus and the scriptures, to let Jesus show us what God is like, not our Twitter feed or progressive politics or conservative politics or this person or our family, but to let Jesus shape in our mind's eye who we envision God to be. And then through Jesus, to draw near to this God of joy. Secondly, the gospel is that the joy of the Trinitarian community is available to all right here and right now through Jesus. That anyone can have access to God through Jesus. That all of us, no matter where we come from, are invited into relationship. All of our city, all of our nation, all of our world, all of human history is invited into relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And as we live in relationship to God through Jesus, we live in direct contact with the source of all joy. And anybody can have this. Think of Jesus' opening line in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, or again, happy, are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are all sorts of ways of reading this statement from Jesus. There's actually a lot of controversy and debate about how to interpret Jesus' opening line to the Sermon on the Mount. My opinion, and, I'm not, and this is not the majority view of late, but I think, I think one way of reading it that I think is right is this is a statement of the gospel. This is not like a reverse virtue ethic in the kingdom of God. Oh, actually, poor people are better off. I, don't, I actually don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, you can be happy even if you're poor. Even if you're under the boot of the Roman Empire as a first century Jew. Even if you came here hungry, 
and I gave you some food, but you went home, and tomorrow morning you're hungry again, you can still be blessed. You can still be happy because you can live in the kingdom of God with me. You can enter it right here and right now through me. And then Jesus goes on, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, to list other examples of what any self-respecting first century Jew would have described as an unblessed or an unhappy life. We turn them into virtues, and they could be, I don't think they are, meek, poor, persecuted, peacemaker. Remember, this is, this is not post-Gandhi. This is a nationalistic, tribal, violent culture under the boot of the Roman Empire. You don't want to be a peacemaker. That's not a good thing in Jesus' world. That was a bad thing. I think Jesus is saying, you can be poor. You can be meek. You can live in a marriage that's a disappointment. You can live still single at you feel in your age. You can live underemployed or unemployed. You can live with chronic illness. You can put into your mind whatever you think is there keeping you from a happy life and you can still be happy. You can be blessed, how? Because you can enter the kingdom of God right here and right now through me. A full exploration of a biblical theology of joy is outside of our time limits, but a basic definition of joy is just this, a pervasive sense of well-being. The semantic domain of this idea of joy is very wide. Words used for it in the New Testament and the Old are, for example, happiness, contentment, pleasure, delight, gladness, cheer, rejoicing. And this pervasive sense of well-being is by nature the byproduct of someone or something else. Just think about that. It's, it's not... It's more than a feeling, but it's not less. And you can't get this feeling or this pervasive sense of well-being directly. You can only pursue it indirectly. This is the problem with our nation, which is built around the pursuit of happiness. You can't do that. You can't pursue happiness. You have to pursue something transcendent or someone transcendent. You have to pursue something or someone higher than happiness and hope that happiness comes to you as a byproduct, as a feeling or a sense that you get from someone or something else. This is the great tragedy of the West. You can't pursue happiness for happiness sake. You have to have transcendence. You have to pursue something or someone else that's greater than happiness. And if you were to put a biblical theology of joy into a Venn diagram, as best I can tell, joy is the byproduct of our pursuit of, or in more biblical language, our delight in three things, communion, character, and circumstances. Communion, meaning communion with God, meaning relational connection to the most joyful being in the universe through Jesus. As you come into relationship with the Trinitarian community, that community is the source of all joy, and you experience joy. Character, by that I mean what philosophers call moral joy. By that they mean this pervasive sense of well-being that you get as you become a deeply good person a person who is honest and hardworking and integrated and authentic and humble and kind and compassionate and present to the moment and easy in your own body and grateful and positive as you become a deeply good person, what in the Bible is called a righteous person, just meaning a deeply good person, you begin to experience the joy that was always meant to be your normal. More on that in a minute. And then finally, circumstances. You know, for all of the talk in the church about how joy isn't based on circumstances, maybe you've come across this trope, that, you know, happiness is, you know, based on the Latin word hap, which means happenstance, it's based on circumstances, comes and goes. The problem is that just doesn't hold up to biblical scrutiny. 
Joy is the feeling that comes when our life is as it should be, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, in our body as it is in heaven, in our relationships or our marriage or our friendship as it is in heaven. Those moments where we're just like, yes, this is how it should be. What do we feel? We feel joy. And it comes as we take delight in the simple pleasures of our circumstances or our life before God. Just like a cup of coffee in the morning or a sunrise at noon this time of year or whatever, if it comes <laughs> up at all. Or a meal with our community. Or what, Yesterday, I literally was sitting there on my Sabbath and the sun started to go down. I'm like, is it that late? Are we, oh, it's three o'clock. Great. <laughs> Welcome to summer, to winter solstice, right? Um, but, you know, just as we take delight, and we'll talk more about this next week, in our life before God. But what's right about the pushback on that third category of circumstances is that our circumstances come and go. And for some people, they go more than they come. There are times when it's just really hard to delight in or take joy in your circumstances, either due to your suffering or due to the suffering of somebody that you love and care about. Maybe you're doing great, but your mom is dying right now, or your best friend is not doing well, or your sister is going through a divorce. How do you feel joy then? Or maybe you're doing great and the people around you are doing great, but have you read the news of late? <laughs> Our nation is in a little bit of disrepair right now. And it's just like, how, how, do we, how do we live with joy? The gospel, as best as I can tell, one way of saying it is that no matter what your circumstances are, whether you're rich or poor or healthy or sick or you're living in a dream come true or a disaster, and no matter what your character is, whether you're a deeply good person or even if you're an absolute wreck, you are a moral disaster with a trail of broken relationships behind you, and you are nowhere close to the person Jesus wants you to grow and mature into and that you really ache to become still right here, right now you can have access to God the Father through Jesus. Amen. You can enter the kingdom. Some of you are already in the kingdom and you just need to wake up to the reality and you can experience the love and the joy and the peace of God right here and right now. That's the gospel. Third, Jesus' vision for your life is to grow and mature you into the kind of person who is deeply joyful. Think of the word godly that is used all through the New Testament. It's the noun God turned into an adjective and applied to followers of Jesus. That's the end goal, for you and I to become godly or godlike or like God. The early church used the Greek word theosis, which is translated into English as deification. Nothing less than that is Jesus' ultimate aim for your life, deification, just meaning God stays creator, you and I stay creation, but that we actually become in our inner woman or man like God. And God, as we made the point, is happy. Now, we hear a lot, or at least I remember this in the church I grew up in, this is not a slam, but we hear that happiness is not the same thing as joy. Happiness, as I said, is based on circumstances. It comes and it goes, but joy is spiritual. It does not rise and it does not fall. And God's will for your life is for you to be holy, not happy. Now, there are all sorts of problems with that common shtick. The first one is that the people who say this normally don't come off as all that happy or compelling. <laughs> We're like, really, you're the anti-happiness person? You're the like, I'm not into happiness, I'm into holiness. I'm like, ooh, I really want to become like you, right? <laughs> Two, it makes it sound like holiness is an antonym to happiness rather than a synonym, as if they are two separate things rather than one and the same. 
And three, it has absolutely zero biblical basis. Why would God ever pit obedience against joy? In fact, a basic word study will show you the writers of the Bible use joy interchangeably with happiness. Listen to the Psalms, Psalm 68. May the righteous, be the deeply good people, be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Psalm 89, happy are the people who know the joyful shout, Lord, they walk in the light from your face in relationship to God. Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your loyal love. Then we will shout for joy and be what? Happy all of our days. Or listen to the prophets, Jeremiah. Have you read him? He's not exactly a positive thinker, right? Not exactly a pick-me-up if you've not read Jeremiah. He, even, even he, it's future tense for him, not present, but he writes this. Then the young women will rejoice with dancing while young and old men rejoice together. It will turn their mourning into joy and bring happiness out of grief. Zechariah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, the fast will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Isaiah, be glad, rejoice forever in my creation, and look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness, and her people will be a source of joy. That sounds a lot like God really wants his people to be joyful and happy, or not even to Jesus in the New Testament yet. Jesus makes this desire of God explicit in his teaching, in particular in the Gospel of John. John chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus, quote, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. John 16, 24. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. John 17, three, I say these things while I'm still in the world so that you may have the full measure of my joy within you. The word, the Greek word that's used in all three of those texts that's translated complete in the first two and full measure in the last one can also be translated full or full to overflow. The imagery in the word picture is of a cup that is so full of water or, or wine, hopefully wine, it's just <laughs> spilling over. You know those moments when you are so full, I'm, and I'm kind of melancholic by nature, and even I have this, those moments when you are so full of joy that it, because of whatever, that it just has to spill out of you in a clap or a hoot or a dance or a song or a whatever it is. Jesus' goal for your life, his long-term goal for your life and for mine, is to grow and mature us into the kind of people for whom that level of joy, that's our default setting. But listen carefully. Joy is not just an emotion. It is an overall condition of the heart. Meaning, it is the kinds of people we become through apprenticeship to Jesus over a lifetime. Jesus does not just want us to feel happy. He wants us to become a happy kind of person. Said another way, Jesus' end goal isn't just to give you joy, as in to like drop it on your head like a water balloon in the summer. And that's not bad, that's how a lot of people think of joy. That's the theology of joy for a lot of people. I come to church, I sing loud enough, and I get my body into it enough. When we get to the second chorus, or maybe the bridge, if it's a Hillsong song, Bethel's good, but Hillsong's a little happier, right? If we, then we get there, then boom, it's like the joy bomb from heaven. Then I feel the joy of God. 
And I say that not to disparage that. That's actually getting at truth. Like it's getting at the truth that whatever the spiritual discipline is, if it's worship by singing or reading your Bible in the morning tomorrow early, right? Like either way, as you present your mind and your body before God, in particular if it's something like singing that is celebratory by nature, you then come into contact or you wake up to the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace and you experience that love and that joy and that peace. You experience that feeling. Beautiful, it's wonderful, it's not a bad thing. But I would argue that Jesus has even higher aim for your life than just for you to feel joy. He wants you to live in the presence and the joy of God 24 seven and to become the kind of person who like him is joyful when you're at church singing or when you're doing time that's dedicated to prayer and when you're stuck in traffic or late or behind on email, when things are going well and when things are falling apart. You are a person who from the inside out, the inner architecture of your soul, you are a joyful woman or man. Because this is how, listen what, listen. This is how we grow and mature into people of love. Now, it's, it's not bad to just say that Jesus wants you to be happy. Any good father wants his son or daughter to be happy. I do, right? But I have greater dreams for my sons and daughters than just feeling good all of the time. I want them to become people of love. And that's just a pale like imitation of God the Father's dream for your life and for mine. It's to become people of love. And the two go together. People who are joyful, grateful, happy, at peace, tend to be more loving than people who are depressed and grumpy and introspective in an unhealthy kind of way and critical. And people like that tend to struggle to get free of the prison of their own pain and to love other people well. And I'm saying that from personal experience, not judgment. So zero shame or guilt on any of you, just honesty. We all know that's true. This is why love, joy, and peace show up together as a triad so often in the New Testament. Because in the inner architecture of the soul, they reinforce each other. And you can only grow so far in one without the other two there to shore them up. You can only become so loving if you're grumpy and stressed out all the time. You can only become so joyful if you're not really a very loving or compassionate person. They grow together, but each one has a ceiling until they grow together and then there is no ceiling. It's year over year more loving, more joyful, and more at peace. So in order, my point is, in order to grow into people of love, which as far as I can tell for Jesus, that is the telos of the spiritual journey. That's the end goal of everything, to become the kind of person who receive love from God and then give that love back to God and to neighbor and even to enemy. If that's what this whole thing is about at some level, then as part of that, we have to also grow into people of joy. Now, as I said, Tonight is part one of two. Next week, the plan is to explore the how of joy, what has come to be called the spiritual discipline of celebration. How do we habituate joy into our mind and our body and our schedule and our budget and our relationships, all of that. And we'll get there. For tonight, there's just a little bit of pre-work that we have to do first to get our soul ready for all of the joy that God has for us. And just stay with me for a few more minutes. Jesus said, that the first step to enter the kingdom of God, said another way, to enter life with a Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace, is to, in Jesus' own language, repent and believe. 
Now, that's language we hear a lot if we're around the church, repent and believe, and so it's lost a little bit of its edge. That word repent is metanoia in Greek, and it literally means to change your mind or change how you think about reality. It can be translated rethink. And the word believe is pistis in Greek, and a number of scholars, again, long story short, argue that a much better English translation is the word trust, because believe has come to, like, the, the word in English is, is kind of, it's, it's devolved into where all it really means now is like you rearrange the mental furniture of your mind to make space for this doctrine or whatever. Not a bad thing, but to trust is a whole other thing. It means like you actually lean the weight of your life onto this doctrine or idea or truth or ethic and live as if it were true. So a number of scholars argue that a better translation than repent and believe is rethink and trust. Rethink everything you think you know about reality and trust in the gospel of Jesus. Trust that living in the kingdom of God with Jesus is what will actually lead you to the happy life you crave. There is all sorts of talk right now about what's wrong with the world. Some argue it's all systemic racism. Others, it's economic inequality. Others argue it's the decline of Judeo-Christian morality. Others think it is Judeo-Christian morality. Some people think it's populism, others think it's globalism. Um, one thing we all agree on is that something is not right, that the world is not as it should be. As followers of Jesus, we come from a tradition that is global, that is historic, that is billions of people across the world today from every culture known to man, that traces its roots all the way back to Jesus himself who said that all of these things are legitimate the racial things, the ethnic things, the political, all of that's legitimate, but they are all symptoms of a much deeper disease, and he called it a disease, and the word he used for it was sin. And for Jesus, repenting of sin and trusting him and his teaching and his way and trusting that he knows better than we are how to live is the first step toward living a happy life in the kingdom. And if you don't believe that yet, and it's okay if you don't, this is a very safe place and we're all in process. There are times when I struggle to believe that. Think about the fact that here in the West or in a city like Portland, for all of our wealth and our freedom and our human rights and our science and our medicine, and now we have Disney Plus and The Mandalorian, for all of, did you see the episode last night? I'm just saying, yeah, no? Now you know what you're doing tonight, all right? For all of that, we are facing an epidemic of anxiety, a crisis of depression. The suicide rate is through the roof. Neurosis is at an all-time high, not to mention the breakdown of the family, the inability of so many people at a pathological level to stay in a marriage, the breakdown of the socio-political order. All of this should at least cause us as a society to, with humility and honesty, ask the question of whether or not we have misdiagnosed and therefore mistreated the problem. And our city in particular, which was recently found to be the least religious city in America, there are more nuns, more millennials and people who identify as nuns in Portland than any other city, where number one, tied for second place is Seattle and, Port and San Francisco, a full nine percentage points behind us. And to clarify, you don't want to win in this race at all. We are also, in survey after survey, and this is a bit hard to measure, but the most depressed city in our nation. 
That should make us at least stop and think. Sociology 101 is that correlation is not causation, but I can't help but hypothesize that there is a very strong link between our city and our nation as a whole and its rejection of God and his vision of life and our emotional crisis, our social decline, and all of the political chaos. If it's true, as Jesus says, that happiness is found, the blessed life is found in living in relationship to God and living in alignment with his vision of human flourishing, what Jesus called life under the rule of God or the reign of God or in the kingdom of God, then it stands to reason that those who refuse any kind of relationship with God don't want it, and those who reject and rebel against his vision of human flourishing will end up, if not as bad people, then at least as sad people because sin sabotages our joy. Sin more than anything else. All those other things are legitimate. They are all symptomatic. Sin is the root cause. Sin sabotages our joy because it cuts us off from communion with the source of all joy. And, and it holds us back from becoming people of character who become people who have joy from the inside out. This is why Ignatius of Loyola defines sin, and this is not how most of us think of sin. He defined it as, quote, unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. For many of us, this is our greatest hindrance in our apprenticeship to Jesus and into our maturity into people of joy. It is, whatever the issue is on the docket for you or for me, at its core, it is an unwillingness to trust God. And many of us, if we're honest, are more willing to trust our own inner intuition or our friends or our family or the marketing departments of some company or the politicians, all of whom have an agenda for our life. We're more willing to trust them or that or ourselves than we are to trust Jesus and his teachings as they come to us through the New Testament in the Bible. And so we sin, and in doing so, we sabotage our capacity for joy in our relationship with God. Keep in mind, and this is so basic and elementary, but we forget it, sin is not just wrong in some arbitrary sense, like, you know, whatever, like a rule, like a random rule. It's wrong in that it's a lie. It does not correspond to reality. It cannot, doesn't, it cannot deliver on its promise to make us happy. None of us sin out of duty or discipline. Not one of us. None of us are like, oh, Thursday evening, 8 p.m., time to, down, time to look at porn. Like, I don't, I'm not really in the mood for it tonight, but it's just the right thing to do. It's in my rule of life. It's a Thursday night, okay. We laugh, but nobody would ever do that. We never sin out of duty. We sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. We sin because we have mental maps that don't correspond to reality. We think that porn, or we think that relationship, or we think that act, or we think that purchase, or we think that you fill in the blank will somehow make us happy. And in the moment, it feels a little bit that way because we confuse sensual pleasure with happiness and joy. The Catholic philosopher Michael Novak writes about three levels of belief. Public belief, which is what we say we believe. So this is Harvey Weinstein before he was found out with the little pen, like the pro-women's rights pen, you know, a few weeks before. Public belief, what we say and what we want people to think we believe. Then there's private belief, which is what we think we believe. Then there's our third level, core belief, 
which is what we actually believe but often don't even realize it until we face some kind of suffering. And his point is just, you never violate your core belief, never. If you're walking on a cliff on the Oregon coast or you're on a rooftop in downtown Portland, unless if you are suicidal or you struggle with mental illness, there's no temptation to walk off the side and die because your core belief is in gravity. You don't doubt gravity, you trust. You read a science textbook somewhere, you've had an experience or two where you fell off a curb or whatever, you trust. Walk off top, we'll die. You've never tried it, you don't know it from personal experience, (laughs) but your core belief is in gravity. You never violate your core belief. So every time we sin, every time we think or say or want or do anything that's out of line with Jesus and his vision of life in the kingdom, It is a gentle nudge from the spirit of Jesus to explore, oh wow, that's my core belief. I don't actually believe Jesus. I don't actually trust Jesus in this area. I don't actually trust what Jesus has to say about sexuality. I don't actually trust what Jesus has to say about money. I don't actually trust what Jesus has to say about prayer or about whatever the thing is. I trust someone or something else. This is a tender example, but I just, feel like I'm supposed to say it this weekend. Did you know that the main pastoral thing we deal with at Bridgetown Church, from a problem perspective, uh, maybe that's not the right language, but is couples that are sleeping together and living together before marriage. It's tearing apart Bridgetown communities across our city. It's a very contentious issue in our community. And so on a regular basis, myself or Colin or one of our pastors or usually a couple of our elders will sit down with a couple who's living together or sleeping together and it's come out in community or whatever. And I think our leaders are very compassionate, very wise and very kind and will in a spirit of love just explain what Jesus has to say about marriage, about sexuality, about trust, about the authority of the scripture, all of that. And without like being weird, like I'm in a therapist's office, one of the most discouraging parts of my job, and I love our community, I'm really encouraged about our community, but one of the most discouraging parts of my job over the last two years has been how many people come back and basically, most of the time in a nice way, just say, no, we're doing what we want. And refuse to, in the language of Jesus, repent and believe, or rethink and trust. Not one of these couples that I've ever sat with want to be unhappy. None of them, why are you doing this? Well, we want to have long-term trust issues in our marriage. (laughs) Never heard that. We want to be more vulnerable to infidelity down the road. Never heard that. We want to become a statistic and be three times more likely to get a divorce. All of this, by the way, is documented fact. This is not opinion. This is like the data. No, nobody's ever said that to me. Nobody wants that. What do people want? They want to be happy. They want it, that's all they want is, ha- and they think that form of intimacy, that form of relationship, that form of cheaper rent, whatever it is, will make them happy. They believe a lie. They believe something that does not correspond to reality. And time after time after time, when we walk with people, that is the end result. It's this passing pleasure, and the New Testament is very honest that sin is really fun for a little while. And then it's dust in your mouth then it's regret, then it's, I can't believe I screwed that up. Then it's, why do I not feel God anymore? Then it's, do I even believe in God? It's just step after step after step. And I say that with honestly no judgment. I say that because it is such a telling example for our community 
of the struggle to trust Jesus. And at some level, and I think we need to teach on this at some point down the road, but everything in this spiritual life comes down to this root issue of trust. That's why Jesus said every, his one line summary of the whole thing, repent, believe the gospel. Rethink and trust the good news. The just shall live by faith or the just shall live by trust. All of us live by trust. Nobody doesn't live by trust. All of us trust people every single day. We trust ideas and ideologies every single day. The question is not do you trust, it's who do you trust or what do you trust? What do you trust in to live the happy life that we all ache for? Religious, irreligious, follower of Jesus, atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, we all ache to just live happy and compassionate and at peace. Who do you trust to pastor you down that road into the life that we all ache for? Jesus' invitation is to repent and to believe, to rethink everything you think you know about what will make you happy, and to trust him and his gospel and his invitation into life in the kingdom of God with the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace, to trust that over your own inner barometer of desire, intuition, opinion, your own wisdom, or that of you fill in the blank, to trust Jesus. To end, thank you for your patience with me tonight. We have no practice on the docket for the week ahead. Most of us are still at work on our rule of life. But maybe an idea for the week ahead would just be for you to sit in the quiet, direct your inner gaze at the Trinitarian community of joy, and just observe in that moment, what it, where is there blockage between you and that joy, between you and that relational connection? Is there a sin? Is there a lie? Is there a thought pattern? Is there a habit? Is there a relationship? Is there a lack of margin or rest or quiet? Or what, is there a hurry? What is it? Where is there some kind of a blockage that is holding you back from life in the kingdom with Jesus? And just to explore that with no guilt or shame, but with honesty and humility before God and with your community, to realize that the journey to joy starts in an unlikely place. It starts with repentance. Thanks for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. As many of you know, we're nearing the end of a year-long capital campaign to raise money for and buy this beautiful historic church building right on the inner east side of the urban core of Portland, Oregon. We can't wait. We're in the remodel project right now. Hope to move in in March of 2020. But right now, we're just raising money as a church to pay for this beautiful space. If you're a podcast listener, follower from another church, another city, and anything else, all moves in your heart and you would like to give back and contribute toward our church and this project over and above whatever you give to your local church, which we're all for. If you have any questions or thoughts, just visit bridgetown.church give or shoot us an email for more information. Grace and peace.